Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Recently, Republican leaders in Congress and President Trump announced their tax reform plan, stressing it benefits the middle class by doing such things as doubling the standard deduction. But Democrats warn the GOP plan will only benefit the wealthy in America. The debate comes at a time when the gap between the middle class and the wealthy continues to widen dramatically. So what's the solution? Do you think the wealthy in America pay enough in taxes? Or are you one of the so-called 1% that feels like you've paid enough back into society and don't want additional tax burdens? Coming up, we'll explore those questions and more with Chuck Collins. He's a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies based in Washington, D.C., and co-editor of inequality.org. He's written several books, including Born on Third Base, a one-percenter makes a case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. That's later. First, many cultures exist in our world with varying customs and languages. What happens when those languages disappear? Does the culture and people who once spoke its words disappear too? Today we're learning about efforts to preserve endangered languages. We'll find out where in the world languages are disappearing the fastest, from Chile to Nepal. But first, a Connecticut linguist joins us in studio. Stephanie Fielding is a member of the Mohican tribe in Uncasville, Connecticut. She's also a visiting presidential professor of linguistics at Yale University and on the board of directors at the Endangered Language Fund. Stephanie, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you so much. Uh, we're interested in learning a little bit about your family history. I understand you're the descendant of Fidelia Fielding, your great-great-aunt. Uh, she was actually the last known fluent speaker of the Mohegan language. Tell us a little bit about Fidelia. Well, uh, she was raised by her grandmother and, and a couple of aunts because her parents, as um, when they were in school, were p- forbidden to speak the language. And, and so it was, it was beat out of them. And so uh, they decided they didn't want that for their children. And so they didn't uh, teach her the language. Um, they just ignored it. But the grandmother was kind of obstinate. She took her away and she put her with a couple of her friends and, and they, would, they taught her all sorts of things besides language. They taught her about plants and medicinal purposes and for the plants and things like that. So it was a good thing. And then how did she work to expand fluency, Fidelia? She didn't. She tried. When she realized that she was the last one, I mean, there was nobody in her generation that could speak more than a few words at a time. And so she collected bits and pieces of, of papers that had letters that were written in Mohegan or Pequot, um, deeds, uh, things like that. And, and, um, and she kept a diary. She kept a diary every day. And, um, and she kept them in this box. And one day, a young man came, and n- none of the young people from the tribe were interested in her because she was probably she was a pretty mean old lady, <laughs> kind of cranky. <laughs> and um, the um, this young man comes in, and he wants to know about the language, and she's thrilled. And so they sit down and they talk for days, and she actually teaches him some of the language. I don't know how much, but he ends up uh, translating a whole bunch. So anyhow, he, um, he was a, a student at Columbia University, 
And she, at the end of their, their time together, she gave him the, that box of, of, um, of papers. And he took it home with him and presented them to his um, professor. They went through, through it and picked out one or two things, and they decided to write something about that and get that published. And then, um, then the professor sent him off on another, you know, excursion. And while he was away, the professor's house burned down. And all of Fidelia's papers were gone. So the only thing that was left that was from Fidelia were her last few diaries. And they were written when she was quite old and not talking to anybody. And, I mean, not even in English. <laughs> and so... So her language was going, and um, what she wrote was very simple, like, it's a clear day today. God is good. You know, things simple like that. That would be an entire entry in her diary. So because she was the last fluent speaker of mm-hmm. Mohegan, can you give us an idea of when the language started uh, to disappear? As soon as she died. Um, she, she died, well, actually before she died, because I mean, she was the only person that was speaking what, what it. What year point. was this? She died in 1908. Mm. So it's been more than 100 years now since she passed away. And, um, and we've been working on it since um, one of, when the tribe started getting a revenue stream through the casino, they made three goals. One was to have um, elder housing for obviously for the elders of the tribe. Uh, a, a second thing was to send anybody who wanted to go to college to college. And the third was um, to get the language restarted. Re, um, and so they, they started working on all of these things. And unfortunately, there was some resistance about the language. So it's, um, it's been up and down. Um, people have been really full of it, you know, and, and tried real hard. Uh, and when Lynn Malerba was appointed chief, she asked me if she if I could translate some prayers for her. Mm-hmm. And she does a, just a beautiful job. She reads them and she's um, fills my heart with, with joy when she when I hear her read a prayer in Mohegan. Now I believe we have a recording is of a traditional Mohegan harvest prayer. Let's hear that. Wowi kantantawit Katapatamayaman wachi ki Katapatamayaman wachi sukayan Katapatamayaman wachi ki sasku Katapatamayaman wachi ki panamawank Katapatamayaman wachi wayontawankanch kwaks niyayo and I believe that's you reciting it this uh, traditional uh, harvest prayer. Tell us what you're saying. Katapatamayaman um, is, is uh, we give you thanks. And so it's a, that's thanking God. And then each seg, uh, phrase after that is, you know, uh, for the, 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 the goodness that you bring to us and to um, the harvest that we have and uh, for this beautiful day. So... You mentioned your great-great-aunt, uh, Fidelia Fielding, died in 1908. But when was the Mohegan language regularly spoken? Which we're talking about... Um, I would say a generation before, two generations before that. Mm-hmm. So it was her, her grandmother and her grandmother's peers that, that could still speak it, speak it regularly. So English became the predominant language of the, of the Mohegan tribe. Yes. 
Um, let's talk about how you then got interested in the revitalization of this language. How far back do you want me to go? <laughs> because I wasn't raised in Mohegan. I was raised in Hawaii. My, my mother was Mohegan. My father was Hawaiian. And when, um, when I was growing up, the other language that was around was Hawaiian. I would sit on my grandmother's lap, and she would talk to her siblings on the telephone. And my father told me that, um, that his, her mother, his grandmother, could only speak Hawaiian, and my, grand, and my father only speak, spoke English. I mean, he knew lots of words, but he could only speak um, English. And so they, when they spoke to each other, he spoke to her in Hawaiian, and she spoke, speak back, and he'd speak to her in English, and she'd speak back in, in Hawaiian. And they could understand that, but you know, it was it was not fluency, you know, in uh, for either of them in the other's language. And then, how did you connect with other tribes um, to help you with um, expanding your fluency of Mohegan? Well. Um, other tribes uh, approached me when uh, I, uh, we have a lot of intertribal um, socials and invite tribes from the area to come and join us um, for, you know, to celebrate a strawberry festival or, or green corn festival. And um, when we're, or the winter, winter, and, and when they're there, there's usually a prayer and um, to start things off. And I said the prayer once and someone um, came to me from the Unkachogs and said, I hear that you've been working on the language for a while. And I said, yes. And he said, would you come and teach, teach us Mohegan? And so I, I went over to Long Island um, and we, we talked about it. And um, it, it ten- turned out to be just too expensive uh, in time and money uh, to, to do a weekly class. So uh, we did it online, and we had um, a video feed with uh, Cisco. And they, uh, that was, we had people there locally and then people remotely on, actually on more than just Long Island because we had uh, someone in England and someone in New Brunswick and, and, uh, peop- and someone in Colorado. So there were people all over the place taking this class and um, made my heart feel good. (laughs) (laughs) This is where we live. In studio with us is Stephanie Fielding, a visiting professor of linguistics at Yale University, a descendant of the last fluent speaker of Mohegan. And she's involved in the resurrection of the the Mohegan language today as we talk about endangered languages, not just uh, in the United States, but across the globe. Uh, You mentioned earlier, Stephanie, that there were these three goals uh, when the casino came about. Um, One of them was to preserve more of the culture and the language, but there was some resistance. Why? It was work, and it was hard, and it wasn't what they were expecting. They were expecting that, that English was, uh, or that, that Mohegan was just a, a different way of, of speaking English. And it's certainly a different way of, of communicating, but it's, a to- I mean, there's a different word for everything, except for skunk. <laughs> the, the word for skunk in Mohegan is skunks, and that's where the word skunk came, came from, because they didn't have skunks in um in Britain. Now, when you look at uh, tribal members today, some who may even work at the casino, do some of them speak it there? 
Uh, well, nobody speaks it, but people do have some uh, words that they have incorporated into their language, just as my father had words incorporated into his um, English, uh, and that, that helps actually preserve it and take it forward. But you need to actually be able to put together a sentence in order for you to be speaking. And so you've created a website. Um, I have. And you, people can hear Mohegan being spoken. Yes. Um, it's, um, you have to put in the HTTP slash slash, um, then www.moheganlanguage.com. Mm. And it's, um, uh, it's, it's got a little bit of everything. You can download a dictionary, a grammar, um, a phrase book, all sorts of things. And you mentioned a lot of the work uh, that is entailed to try to preserve uh, the Mohegan language to expand fluency. How much do you rely on on federal funding? And is that something that you expect to continue? Well, we haven't relied on it at all. Um, we are looking at uh, getting a, a, a federal grant um, next year, but the way things are going in federal government, it might not happen. So we might have to figure out a different way of, of working it, at it. And I mentioned that you are, you've been named a visiting professor of linguistics at Yale University this fall. What will you be teaching? The Mohegan language and um, endangered languages and diversity and endangerment and revitalization of languages. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Stephanie Fielding is with us. She's a linguist and member of the Mohegan tribe in Uncasville. She's been working on expanding fluency of the Mohegan language. As I mentioned, she'll be a visiting professor in linguistics at Yale this fall. Now, efforts to preserve languages in danger of becoming extinct is not unique to Connecticut. Coming up, we examine areas of concern across the globe. We find out more about groups working to keep certain languages from dying out. That's after the break. I'm Tom Ashbrook. Coming up on the next On Point, California on fire. Iran deal on the line. A World War III warning. Weinstein, ick. Our weekly news roundtable goes behind the headlines. Plus, freedom, respect, and taking a knee in the NFL. The BP walks out. Trump threatens. What's right here? That's coming up on the next On Point from NPR. This morning at 10. Support comes from Long Wharf Theater, presenting Fireflies, a beautiful new romance by the Tony-nominated author of Enchanted April. On stage October 11th through November 5th. Tickets at longwharf.org. And from the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, presenting Spirits at Stowe, an otherworldly tour. Learn about Stowe's involvement with the paranormal and hear about mysterious events. Evening tours October 20th, 21st, 27th, 28th, and 31st. HarrietBeecherStowe.org. Support also comes from Central Connecticut State University, holding a Graduate Studies Open House October 14th. CCSU offers a wide array of graduate and certificate programs. CCSU.edu slash grad. Affordable, accessible, excellent. Graduate Studies at CCSU. Mostly sunny today, highs near 66. Mostly cloudy tonight, lows around 53. There's a chance of showers tomorrow afternoon, highs near 71. And a chance of showers Sunday morning, highs near 80. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now in studio with me today, Stephanie Fielding, visiting presidential professor of linguistics at Yale University and board of directors at the Endangered Language Foundation, also a member of the Mohegan tribe. And joining the conversation now is Ross Perlin, assistant director of the Endangered Language Alliance. Ross, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We were just speaking with Stephanie about um, her efforts to expand fluency of the Mohegan language. Tell us about your work in New York City with the Alliance. The Endangered Language, language Alliance is a, is a nonprofit based in New York, and our mission is to, is to document and to support uh, endangered languages and minority languages both in New York City and beyond. So New York is, from what we know, the most multilingual place not only in the world but maybe in the history of the world. There is something like... 600 to 800 languages spoken just in the metropolitan area. That's about 10% of the world's total. Uh, and what we do is work with different communities that are interested in documenting, whether it's their, their, their music, their storytelling, their, 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 their vocabulary, their grammar, uh, or in some cases in, in doing some of the kind of work that, that Stephanie is doing, revitalizing languages or, or working with uh, communities to maintain them. When you talk about preserving language, maintaining language, how do you do that? There's a variety of ways. Uh, I'm coming at it partly as a linguist and partly as, as an activist. From a linguistic point of view, um, the very first thing is to, is to begin to document a language so that you sort of know what it is um, and so can create teaching materials and, and, and media and potentially a writing system and the sorts of things which in kind of today's world, um, you know, really help to help a community to, to continue its language and get more kind of official status for its language. So that, you know, that means creating a dictionary of a language. That means describing the grammar of a language, recording stories and, and transcribing and translating them, figuring out the sound system. So kind of uh, sort of initial analytic work that, that linguists can really help with to, uh, to sort of take the measure of a language so that then more materials can be created. Can you give us an idea specifically of a group of people you've worked with, uh, these collecting these oral histories? Over the last uh, year and a half, we've been working with the Himalayan community in New York City, uh, people from a kind of five-country area, one of the world's great kind of linguistic hotspots, something like a fifth of the world's languages spoken in places like northern Nepal, uh, Tibet, parts of China, Bhutan, northern India. Um, and recently, in the last few decades, a community has, has, has formed in New York, which is almost kind of a microcosm of the, the diversity of the Himalayas. So dozens of languages spoken, especially in, uh, in Queens and to some extent Brooklyn. And so we've been, we've been working at kind of the initiative of people in the community who said, you know, wow, these are, these are languages that, are, you know, that our elders are speaking, their, their stories, you know, the, the generation of people who came from very small villages in pretty remote valleys now living in New York City. So, the, so, you know, obviously a lot of kind of language contact and a lot of language change, uh, difficulty in kind of maintaining maintaining those languages and traditions. And so we've, we've worked with them to record oral histories, life stories in, um, in something like 15 of those, of, of those languages. And these are some languages which are only spoken by a few thousand or a few cases, some cases a few hundred people and that have been pretty, you know, sparsely documented in the past. So is it difficult to differentiate between a language and a dialect? I mean, how do you go about doing that? Well, the old kind of famous uh, famous quote is that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy, uh, which I think does it re- reflect the, the, political, the political side of this. Uh, something kind of gets to be considered a language often if it has government support, if it's kind of official, if it's used in education systems. 
Uh, so there's a very political kind of side to it, which is what you see when kind of nation states have come into being over the last century or two that really kind of allows things to, to call themselves a language. Now, from a linguistic point of view, uh, the criterion that, that people hold by is, is called mutual intelligibility. So basically, can two people who are speaking, you know, two kinds of language varieties, how well can they understand each other? And if they pretty much do understand each other, it's kind of different. But, you know, let's say 80% or more, then people talk about it as two dialects of the same language. Uh, whereas if they, they really can't, you know, understand each other that well, even if there are a few words, then people talk about it being two different languages. But, boy, is it, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky line. And those terms, language and dialect, are often pretty charged. So, you know, uh, we kind of avoid the, 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 the politics of that often and the sort of shaming, especially of, of minority languages and smaller languages, which usually is, you know, to say, oh, it's just a dialect. It's usually kind of a way of, of, of dismissing uh, smaller languages spoken by less powerful mm. groups. And, you know, what we focus on is just the diversity of all language varieties and the, you know, I mean, all, all of these languages are equally sophisticated in terms of their grammar and their vocabulary and the things that they can do in a communicative sense. So that's what we kind of work on and, and try to support. This is where we live today. We're looking at efforts to uh, preserve endangered languages and the importance of doing that with uh, Ross Perlin, Assistant Director of the Endangered Language Alliance. In studio with us, Stephanie Fielding. She's a linguist, uh, linguist in Connecticut, a visiting professor of linguistics at Yale. She's working to expand fluency of the Mohegan language. Oh, Ross, I wanted to go back to you and to ask you about you know, why it's so important to preserve these languages um, and how you've seen preserving languages helping possibly preserve cultural practices as well. Language and culture are, are deeply interlinked. Um, as a, you know, I think everybody kind of on, on reflection can, you know, can think about all kinds of ways in which the words in their language and the expressions in their language, uh, and even at a deeper level where the words kind of come from and their histories um, and the knowledge that's encoded in them, uh, you know, reflects that. Uh, I think there are several approaches to understanding the importance of linguistic diversity. Um, one is, is, is almost scientific, from a scientific point of view, understanding the possibilities that human language has and the variety of forms that it takes uh, and has taken over, you know, over the thousands and tens of thousands of years of human language. Also, the knowledge, the, the, the scientific, the botanical and biological knowledge that is inside, uh, that is inside languages, local knowledge, ecological knowledge, uh, knowledge about uh, plant medicines and uh, a whole variety of things have come from, you know, all the languages of the world, knowledge about migrations and history. Uh, so there's a whole kind of scientific set of arguments. And then there's a whole set of arguments that are really about justice. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence showing that education in one's mother tongue is, uh, you know, is, is, is really the best, the, the best way to, to educate children. Uh, and that anything else is really putting, putting children on a kind of unequal, uh, unequal playing field. Um, there's the fact that people who are, you know, speakers of speakers of smaller languages have been historically marginalized. Uh, generally, I, I found that, uh, you know, people who actually speak the most languages are often those with the least formal education and those with, you know, advanced degrees and so on often only speak one or two languages. But people who, uh, you know, who are derided as being uneducated actually often speak four or five, six languages. And the benefits of bilingualism and multilingualism from an early age in terms of your cognitive abilities uh, and, you know, what it does for the development of the mind. I've, I've also been really strongly shown in, in recent years. So there's a whole variety of reasons, I think, to, to try to understand and document and celebrate uh, linguistic diversity. Now, 
you know, the question that for any given group of how to, to try to continue their language in, you know, especially smaller languages in, in a difficult environment where English and other large majority languages are, you know, have really imposed themselves. You know, that's up to each individual group as to how they're going to work on that. And what we try to do at the Endangered Language Alliance, and I think a number of linguists are trying to do, is is to help those who, uh, you know, those communities that, that, that want to do something to, whether it's just to document their language so there's a record or, or preserve it in an archive, or to actually keep it, uh, in some cases, like what, what Stephanie is doing, you know, really as a, living, as a living language and a living part of a community. Now, Ross, I wanted to go back to Stephanie Fielding again. Uh, we just have a couple more minutes, uh, but I wanted to, because you mentioned Stephanie, that one of your relative, your parents uh, was Hawaiian. There has been a resurgence in the Hawaiian language preserving it. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about that before we run out of time. Well, um, they had all all sorts of problems, including a, a law that said that that nothing but English could be spoken or t- used for instruction in the schools. And so um, they changed that law. They made um, the gov- the um, legislature made Hawaiian an official language, which it wasn't, even though, you know, you could turn on a radio station and hear nothing but Hawaiian music on that radio station. Um, so there, uh, they, they started language nests, and they started them with, uh, first they had mixed um, ages, and then they start, went and just started them with three-year-olds. And then next year, they'd add more three-year-olds. And the next year, they'd add more three-year-olds. So you had this growing group. And uh, it got to a point where these were children that were not just fluent in English and Hawaiian, but they could, um, whereas before Hawaiian-speaking children were, the, or, or those that were from the Hawaiian culture, were the lowest on the standardized tests, they were now the highest. So this, there was, uh, and they ended up going to all of the Ford schools, you know, Oxford and Harvard and Stanford and, you know, all those great schools that, that are around the United States and, and the world. And that speaks to what Ross Perlin was saying about when people learn their mother tongue, they can often excel. Um, so that's really interesting to see that happened in Hawaii. Yes. Because the government became active and promoted this. Yes. Stephanie Fielding is a visiting presidential professor of linguistics at Yale University. She's also a member of the Mohegan tribe in Uncasville, Connecticut. We also heard from Ross Perlin, assistant director of the Endangered Language Alliance. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When we come back, Chuck Collins joins us. He's a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's also the author of Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. Coming up, we're going to take a closer look at that book. But first, it's WNPR's fall fundraising campaign. If you appreciate where we live, here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support this show. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Let's talk taxes. Debate around tax reform in the U.S. often pits the rich against the poor at a time when the gap between the two continues to widen dramatically. According to the Institute for Policy Studies, the 20 wealthiest people own more wealth than, quote, the bottom half of the American population combined. What's the solution? Do you think the wealthy in America pay enough in taxes? Or are you one of the so-called 1% that feels like you've paid enough back into society and don't want additional tax burdens? 
You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You can also email Where We Live at WMPR.org. Now, Chuck Collins has an interesting perspective. He's a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., and co-editor of Inequality.org. He's written several books. The one we're focusing on today is Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. Chuck joins us from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Chuck, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Now, you've written several books, but for listeners who may not know about your work, they probably recognize the name of your great-grandfather, Oscar Mayer. That's right. My dad used to say bringing home the bacon meant something different in our family, (laughs) which is true. But yeah, I come, I'm in fourth generation of a, of a great 1880s founded business. Now, you've written a lot. You do a lot of speaking engagements. And you often say that you were born lucky. Tell people what you mean. Well, I think, you know, in my circumstances, I actually was born into a family with uh, substantial wealth. I actually, you know, inherited enough wealth when I was 21 that I could pay off my college tuition and have a substantial amount of money left over. And I'm still unraveling all the ways in which that gave me a head start. Uh, not just money, but sort of the social capital of growing up in an affluent family, four generations of economic stability, access to education, access to help when things go wrong. All those things kind of, I think of them as almost like compounding advantages over generations. So you did something not just doing good in your 20s, but then you made a decision that might be surprising to some people listening in terms of the the inheritance uh, that you would have uh, uh, gotten from your family. What what did you decide to do? You know, I think I was inspired by authentic communities where people really kind of were all in for each other. And that was not something I grew up with. I mean, I grew up around people who were generous and charitable, but I I didn't have the, the experience of solidarity and reciprocity that I was seeing. And and so I, I made the decision to give the, the wealth away, not necessarily out of sort of a, you know, uh, just a, a, a charitable impulse, but it actually f- felt like it was interfering with my own progress in life as a person, you know. So I made this decision to give the, give the wealth I had away to several foundations in the region and uh, continued to do the work that I've been doing. And But it did kind of liberate me in the sense of being able to look very unflinchingly at these inequalities that have emerged really in the last 30 years. Explain to us why the income inequality, how bad is it in this country if it doesn't improve, um, this this gap is not lessened? Well, I would characterize what we're living through as a period of extreme inequality, similar to what uh, the United States went through 100 years ago, you know, during the first Gilded Age, where we have a dizzying gap both in income and wealth and opportunity. For 40 years, real wages for the bottom half of wage earners have pretty much stayed stagnant or fallen. Uh, And meanwhile, most of the income and wealth gains have not just gone to the top 1%, but are kind of gushing up to the top one-tenth of 1%. So we're living in a period where wealth is very concentrated. And it actually matters a lot because it undermines sort of social cohesion. It obviously undermines democracy. I think the election that we just lived through is a reflection that a polarized economy gives rise to a polarized politics. Healthcare, it's bad for the economy. There's, I've, I've come to realize there's almost like a, 
a mountain of interdisciplinary research on why these inequalities undermine pretty much everything you and I care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's the moment we're in. And I think, but I also think that moment creates an interesting uh, uh, thing, which is for me, for my, for people in my circumstances who grew up in the one percent or have made entrepreneurial wealth, it's actually entirely in our selfish interest to fix these inequalities because they undermine the quality of life for everyone, including the very wealthy. As early as 2003, we learn in your book that uh, you travel with some one percenters, including including the father of Bill Gates Sr. How are Americans responding? Uh, to your message uh, that um, it's it's up for the wealth up to the wealthy to return what society has enabled them uh, to to be successful. I think people are obviously pretty polarized on that, uh, and it sort of depends on the story that you have in your head about how wealth is created. You know, I think the dominant story is: look, there's a you know a successful group of people who get up early in the morning, work hard all day, take risks, and create enormous wealth. Uh, and they deserve it because they, it's a function of their own individual effort. And there are obviously cases where that, you know, there are new immigrants who show up with very little in their pockets and, and make extraordinary uh, heroic efforts to build companies and businesses. But the bigger story, I think, and it exists side by side with the other story, is no one does it alone. And if you have wealth of the 15 million or 15 billion level, your wealth in part comes from the function of the society, the things that we all do together, the, the, the public institutions, the investments, the research, the infrastructure, intellectual property protections. I mean, go down the list. There's a web of commonwealth that makes individual wealth possible. And what I find is if, if people see that, whether they're wealthy or not, what I've found is like someone like Bill Gates' dad grew up, got the GI Bill first person in his family to go to college, got the GI Bill to go to law school. He sees this like web of public investments that made his own wealth and success possible. And so he says, well, yeah, yeah, I worked hard, but I need to give back so that the next generation can have the same opportunities I had. And that creates a very different story. So part of the reason I wrote this book, Born on Third Base, is because I wanted people to understand There's a very different story about individual wealth and success and the role of society in making that possible. And part of that is through paying taxes. Part of it's by giving to charity. Part of it's by giving other gifts. But a big part of it is through public investments. You know, we used to tax ourselves at much higher levels. And I think of after World War II, you know, we taxed ourselves. High incomes and high estates and inheritances were taxed more and funds went to pay for public goods like debt-free college education and first-time homebuyer loans and things that built mostly a white middle class. But that gives us an example, a clue of what good societies are capable of. Uh, Chuck Collins is with us from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Joining the conversation now is Jim Horan, CEO of the Connecticut Association for Human Services. Jim, welcome to the show. For having me. We often hear about income inequality in this state, particularly when you look at uh, the, the gap between the wealthy uh, and the middle class and the poor in Connecticut. Give us an idea of, of the burden that's being felt here, Jim. Yeah, Connecticut has some of the highest inequality in the country. Our income inequality is third among the 50 states. It's even worse for wealth 
and Fairfield County is the most unequal of the top 100 metro areas in the country. Uh, the differences between Greenwich and Bridgeport are dramatic, but of course they're pretty dramatic between Hartford and the Farmington Valley or New Haven and the Shoreline communities. And then when you look at race, we also have tremendous inequality, so it's a matter of place and race. For example, uh, the poverty rate for whites in Connecticut is 8%. It's 21% for Latinos and 26% for African Americans. So we have very dramatic inequality in our, in our state. We also have a continuing budget crisis, as you know, uh, as you're part of, again, the Connecticut Association for Human Services. Oftentimes we hear from lawmakers and residents in the state that, you know, we can help decrease our deficit by increasing taxes on the wealthy. Then you hear from the other side, wealthy residents and some lawmakers, they're taxed enough. They'll leave Connecticut. Are we in a difficult predicament, Jim? We are in a tough situation, but, uh, you know, the solutions that Chuck is talking about, it's not a matter of pitting the wealthy against the poor. It's a matter of trying to figure out how we can work together to make things more fair and to create an atmosphere where we can have economic growth in the state that will benefit everyone. And I want to thank Chuck because he inspired a lot of the work that's happened in Connecticut to help make our tax system more equal. Um, Over the years, uh, I was part of a group that no longer exists, but uh, it's called One Connecticut, where we worked, inspired by United for a Fair Economy, a group that Chuck founded and worked with to help make Connecticut's income tax more progressive. And I think that that was the right move. And now we have more income tax brackets, and that's a much uh, better situation in our state. However, we're also at the point where we've had very little economic growth, very little job growth in our state, and we do have to figure out policy solutions that will work to create both economic growth and also reduce the inequality that exists in our state. And some of the moves that are being considered right now with the state budget crisis, um, big cuts, Uh, to human services programs, to programs that serve low-income people, low-income cities, that's not the right move. And so we have to figure out solutions that are going to uh, generate enough revenue to have adequate funding for essential services in our society, for our education system, while at the same time making sure that we can have an economic atmosphere that encourages businesses to grow and more jobs here for everyone. I wanted to weigh uh, get Chuck Collins to weigh in on that. Jim mentioned it's not about pitting the rich against the poor, but that's often the debate in this country. In your book, you talk about how uh, we can't be uh, antagonists, and this, that's not the way to get to a solution. So what are some ways, Chuck, to get to uh, a place where people can come together on this? It starts with realizing that if you're a wealthy resident of Connecticut, it's entirely in your interest to have a, have a state and have communities where they're you know, people have adequate access to jobs and decent incomes and that these extreme inequalities are really undermining them. There's all kinds of research that just shows it's bad for the health of local communities and it's bad for rich people. So that's part of it is to realize, and I, 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 I like to say, you know, look, it's time for the wealthy to come home and commit to place because over the last 20, 30 years, we're seeing wealth moving rapidly around the world capital moving offshore, huge amounts of wealth is being hidden uh, in offshore tax systems or in complicated trusts that mask who benefits, who owns the wealth. That's taking money out of the public sphere, out of the communities. Bring the wealth home. Bring it back to Connecticut. Invest it in local communities, in the local economy. Build a healthy regional food system, a local energy system. Revitalize our cities and communities, it is in our 
interest, everyone's interest to do that. I want to fit in a listener call. John's calling from Terryville. John, you're on the show. Yeah, I'd like to dispute some of the, um, the ideas there in terms of bringing capital home. How are you going to bring capital home if we're taxing at the highest rate? Capital goes where it gets the best return and it's going to be taxed the least. So that's why corporations are going to Ireland and different places like that where they're taxed at 15%. So if you think this is just an easy well we can dip into with corporations, uh, that's not accurate. All right, John, thank you for your comment. Chuck, do you want to respond to our listener? We have a statutory corporate tax rate of 35%, but the effective rate, the rate that corporations actually pay, is closer to 19%, which is below the global average. And it's true. Ireland has created these tax breaks. A number of countries have created kind of a loopholes that U.S. corporations are using to move their you know, patents and subsidiaries overseas and, and play this kind of shell game to avoid taxes. What I would say to John is there is several hundred global corporations that are paying zero or under 5% in terms of taxes. The reason they're leaving this country is because they don't want to pay any taxes anywhere. So the solution is to have global treaties with our, with other countries that say, look, global corporations shouldn't be pitting countries against each other to pay zero, and uh, that we should have a basic uniform. Corporations should pay at least 10% income tax, and depending on what the kind of business they do, they should pay more. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to just talk to you more about some of the policies, uh, not just tax reform, but policies to help uh, the people in that bottom half of the country to be able to put a little aside to save, to have that safety net. What can, uh, you know, I guess individual states do? You know, a number of states are doing interesting things to look at how do you help people uh, save, creating matching savings programs. The whole issue of college debt and how can people... A number of states are looking at creating debt-free college education funds. Washington state taxes inheritances, you know, above $5 million and puts it into a fund that provides debt-free college education for Washington state residents. So there are things that can raise the floor, just as we did after World War II. A whole generation of people were able to buy their houses with, you know, 40-year, 1% fixed-rate mortgages. If you go around Connecticut and talk to farmers and baby boomers, they, they all took advantage of the post-World War II wealth-building opportunity programs. We can do the same thing again, and states can innovate in that space. We should, we should stress, and I know you do in your book, uh, after World War II, African-Americans didn't get the same fair shake. Yeah, and I think that's one of the lessons is, look, you, can't, you shouldn't design a wealth-building opportunity program and then uh, racially exclude. You know, we put millions of white families on the express train to wealth building, and we left blacks and Latinos out. So we need to remedy that. We need to repair that. And why wouldn't we create a first-time homebuyer program for people who've been excluded of any race, been excluded from the opportunity to buy a house? Why do we push them into the predatory uh, lending markets? Chuck Collins, senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, author of several books. The one we were talking about today, Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. Thank you so much to Chuck Collins, who joined us today from the studios of WGBH in Boston. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much, Lucy. Also want to thank Jim Horan, Horan rather, CEO of the Connecticut Association for Human Services. Jim, thanks so much for your time as well. Thanks very much, Lucy. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown. Technical producer is Kyan Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you appreciate what you hear on Where We Live, please support this show. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.